think we'll make a start. Perhaps people could sit down and stop talking so we can get going. Um, we're here to discuss um, asset market bubbles and monetary policy. I have a very easy task as moderator. The topic needs very little by way of introduction, and this uh, panel even less. What, if anything, should the Fed do to slow the inflation of asset bubbles? A lively and important issue even before the financial collapse of the past few months. And now that we are all busy rewriting history, it has assumed even larger proportions. We're all familiar, I think, with Alan Greenspan's answer to the question. It can't be done, and it is a mistake to try. But what does our panel say about it? I'm especially curious to know what bearing, if any, uh, recent events have had on their thinking on this. Have the facts changed enough to change anybody's mind? We'll see. Well, as I say, we have a, gr uh, a tremendous panel that needs very little introduction. Maybe I'm the only person who needs an introduction. I'm Clive Crook from the Financial Times and the Atlantic Monthly. But I think you will recognize uh, the other faces up here. We have Otmar Issing, who was on the board of the European Central Bank between 98 and 06, responsible for economics and research. From 1990 to 1998, he was on the board and the Central Council of the Deutsches Bundesbank. Uh, we have uh, John Makin, who's the chief economist at Caxton Associates, a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where he produces indispensable commentary. Larry White is the Hayek... <laughs> Larry White is the Hayek Professor of Economic History at the University of Missouri-St. Louis and an adjunct scholar here at Cato. He's the author of Free Banking, among other books, and a blogger, but then aren't we all, at divisionoflabor.com. And on my immediate left, Mickey Levy has kindly agreed to sit in for Anna Schwartz, who I wasn't able to make, make the panel. So let's kick off, and if I may, I'll ask Otmar Issing uh, to start. Otmar, what's your answer to the question... What can be done, what should be done about asset market bubbles? Uh, should I speak from yes. here? Uh, yes, the answer seems to be yes. So and could I just say uh, 12 minutes? 12 minutes. So I'm going to have to limit all of you to 12 minutes. So I will control it the length of my speech, but the speed. <laughs> right. So That's what tradition requires. This is 30, 30 seconds, which are not on my, on my bill. <laughs> Beyond dealing with the immediate problems, I think any crisis raises questions of why and how we got there and what lessons should be drawn to avoid a repetition of past developments without laying the ground for a new disaster. This does also apply to the current crisis in financial markets. Even during the heaviest turbulence, a discussion has started on obvious deficits in the system of regulation and supervision and on badly needed improvements on both. I will concentrate my remarks on monetary policy and asset prices, which is not saying that I would ignore the need to improve the regulatory and supervisory system. They are no substitutes, they are complements. So I concentrate on monetary policy. <coughs> there is a broad consensus around the world <coughs> that central banks should maintain price stability, respectively keep inflation low and stable. This is reflected in the mandate given to the central banks in many countries. 
The objective is normally specified in terms of an index of consumer prices in one form or the, or the other. There are very good reasons, very good reasons for this practice. The purchasing power of people is undermined by an increase in consumer prices. Uh, we are all aware of that. Any index of consumer prices covers only a segment of prices in an economy, although an important one. Prices of assets like real estate or equities are excluded by definition. Most of the time, this is not seen as a problem. Quite the opposite. Monetary policy can only control the development of goods prices over the medium to long term. But in times of large movements of asset prices, the debate always starts on whether this concentration of monetary policy on consumer prices alone is appropriate or not. Asset price developments have an influence on spending decisions by companies and households. A rising value of one's house makes people richer and might encourage additional consumption. Higher stock prices reduce the cost of equity financing and might contribute to increase investment. The opposite will happen with falling asset prices. This so-called wealth effect will finally, via changes in expenditure, have an influence on the development of consumer goods prices and should therefore be included, for example, in inflation and growth projections by central banks. The strategy of inflation targeting comprises this effect beyond which asset prices should not play a role in the conduct of monetary policy. On the role of asset prices, there is wide consensus on the following principles. First, central banks should not target asset prices. Second, central banks should not try to break a bubble. And third, central banks should follow a mop-up strategy after the burst of a bubble, which means injecting enough illiquidity to avoid a macroeconomic meltdown. One and two are uncontroversial. A central bank has no instruments to target successfully asset prices and creating a macroeconomic disaster by pricking a bubble would ruin the standing of a central bank. On three, there is also broad agreement. Once a bubble has burst, the central bank has to take all necessary steps to avoid the propagation of the consequences of a collapse of asset prices, not repeating 1929. However, restricting the role of the central bank to a totally passive role in the period of a build-up of a bubble and practically pre-announcing its role as the saviour once the bubble bursts represents, in my opinion, an asymmetric approach which might imply the risk of creating moral hazard with actors driving the development of asset prices. What I would call the checks and hold consensus uh, in the literature, I refer to Greenspan 2002, Blinder 2005, Mishkin 2007. This is exactly uh, the case. Efficient markets incorporate all relevant information and reflect the market's best assessment. How could a central bank pretend to know better? However, this trend of argumentation may be misleading. A central bank is not a trader, nor an actor in financial markets, which might, for business reasons, be forced to follow a market trend which, to their own judgment, is not sustainable. As a trader, you are fired before you are proven right. A central bank has a different position and responsibility. The central bank must not pretend that it has better knowledge on the true valuation of specific assets. Here I fully agree with Don Korn. 
But this does not hinder it to communicate concerns of the sustainability of strong increases in asset prices over an extended period of time in an appropriate form, thereby trying to contribute to a more sober assessment of such developments. If the central bank is not subject to business incentives, its position should get special attention. But beyond proper communication, we did not need the present financial crisis to understand that simply committing to principle three, that is announcing to provide enough liquidity in case of a crisis, might not be the panacea to the problem of asset prices from the perspective of a central bank. In some financial crises, this policy might seem to work. But because not least of the moral hazard problem, this success may lay the ground for future, even bigger problems. The Jackson Hole Consensus follows a different philosophy. In a paper presented at the Jackson Hole Conference in 2005, Ellen Blinder states that, I quote, the mop-up after strategy received a severe real-world stress test in 2000 to 2002, when the biggest bubble in history imploded, vaporizing some $8 trillion in wealth in the process. It is noteworthy, but insufficiently noted, that the ensuing recession was tiny and that not a single sizable bank failed. In fact, and even more amazingly, not a single sizable brokerage or investment bank failed either. Thus, the fears that the mop-up after strategy might be overwhelmed by the speed and magnitude of the bursting of a giant bubble proved to be unfounded. Regarding Greenspan's legacy, then, we pose a simple rhetorical question. If the mopping-up strategy worked this well after the mega-bubble burst in 2000, Shouldn't we assume that it will also work well after other, presumably smaller, bubbles burst in the future? Our suggested answer is apparent. End of the quote. At a closer look, what I call the Jackson Hole consensus seems to be based, to my interpretation, on uh, unconvincing arguments. Even if the mop-up strategy might work initially by exactly doing its job in a financial crisis of limited dimension, its asymmetric character may lay the ground for the next bubble and crisis and so on. The asymmetry in this monetary policy proposal is strengthened by the practice of what has been called risk management paradigm. This can be seen as an approach to deal with low probability events and severe outcomes against which a kind of insurance, for example, via interest rate cuts, uh, has to be applied. It seems that this approach so far has only been referred to or applied in dealing with risks of recession or deflation, that is, in a rather, as I see it, asymmetric way. The greatest macroeconomic risk is apparently a broad collapse of asset prices, including real estate, after a big bubble, destroying balance sheets of banks and other financial institutions, non-financial companies and households. If such a disaster emerges, mop-up is without alternative, but is anything than a fast-working and satisfying solution. You can observe every day. Should not risk management also be applied by looking forward and trying to, if not avoid, at least mitigating the risk of building up a bubble 
that sooner or later might burst. This leads to the argument of the central bank leaning against the wind. This is anything but a simple device, and it is not even certain that it might always work sufficiently well. But this is, in my eyes, no argument to let things just go, keep central bank interests low, even if the economy is doing well. Can central banks under such circumstances just ignore the impact of low central bank interest rates on the financial industry, on innovation, decline in spreads across different types of risk, etc., and on asset prices, especially for housing? There is evidence that too low interest rates, for example, encourage too much risk-taking by banks with the consequence of threatening financial stability. The question is price stability enough by Bill White from the BIS at the time, 2006, goes to the core of the problem. Highest attention has to be paid that the big achievement of low and stable inflation is not endangered. Central banks must not lose sight of their main objective, which is goods price stability. But fortunately, there is no lasting trade-off between price stability and financial stability. If the central bank applies a medium-term horizon for the definition of price stability and adopts an encompassing approach which integrates money and credit in an appropriate way, financial imbalances will implicitly obtain attention. This is true even if financial stability is not considered a general objective of the central bank and monetary policy aims at maintaining the objective of price stability, which means consumer price stability. In rare circumstances, though, a short-term conflict is possible. With short-term conflict, I refer to a situation where it is optimal to deviate from the desired rate of inflation in the short run in order to best maintain price stability over the medium term. Therefore, in the context of an appropriate definition of price stability and financial stability, and in particular an appropriate concept for the horizon to which the policy objective should apply, the conflict disappears. A monetary policy strategy that monitors closely monetary and credit developments as potential driving forces for consumer price inflation in the medium to long run has an important positive side effect. It may contribute at the same time to limiting the emergence of unsustainable developments in asset valuations. As long as money and credit remain broadly controlled, the scope for financing unsustainable runs in asset prices should also remain limited. Corresponding changes in asset prices also help to support the analysis of the character of the development of money and credit, so it's working in both ways. In the meantime, an impressive number of empirical studies have demonstrated that hardly any asset price bubble has not been accompanied, if not preceded, by strong growth of credit and or money. The BIS has published a number of studies. The European Central Bank has done so, and uh, Don Cohn has referred to it. Uh, money, credit in this context in our time is uh, a very broad and probably vague concept. Uh, it's not st just stopping at M3. In the past, we have talked about uh, near monies, uh, etc. Credit uh, is not just bank lending. Uh, so it's uh, not an easy task to identify uh, growth of money and credit uh, in a, uh, a way which is appropriate in conducting monetary policy. So I'm not saying it's an easy task, certainly not. Here I fully agree with what uh, Don Cohn said. 
The obvious advantage, uh, and I cannot, cannot avoid to refer to the strategy of the European Central Bank, is the fact that taking information from the monetary analysis, and by monetary analysis I refer to this broad assessment of developments of money and credit, <clears throat> to take this into account avoids the need to be specific about mispricing of assets. The widening of the horizon to the medium to long term within the monetary analysis functions as a kind I would call it integrated risk management. And this works symmetrically in both directions, leaning against headwind, asset price declines, as well as against tailwind increases. This is in contrast to the risk management approach as it was presented so far as a concept and applied in practice when it was triggered more or less, to my interpretation, arbitrarily and was considered only in cases of supposed risk of deflation or a channel downturn of the economy. Monitoring money and credit continuously and taking the results of the analysis into account via cross-checking when it comes to monetary policy decisions guarantees the symmetry of the approach and its permanent application. May I just give two examples, quoting from uh, a statement of the ECB. Uh, ultimately, this cross-check leads to a better assessment of the correctness of the policy stance. Early indications that the progress of surging equity or house prices in the euro area might be interacting with conditions of abundant liquidity would lead to a heightened vigilance, ECB 2005. And finally, from a statement of uh, President Trichet in 2006, June, uh, I quote, Monetary developments therefore require careful monitoring, especially in light of the strengthening of economic activity and, in particular, of strong asset price dynamics, especially in housing markets. Uh, I could continue with many, many uh, uh, references to publications of the ECB and uh, let me conclude by saying we have I'm still saying we this might uh, continue until the end of my life <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we never claimed that we have found the solution to this problem monetary policy and asset prices but uh, we tried hard we acknowledged there is a big problem and we have to deal with it and uh, we try to incorporate it in the context of this two-pillar strategy. It can be discussed uh, if it works, where are the problems. I am aware of all, all the problems. But I think first uh, we have to acknowledge uh, this is a problem <coughs> for me, the biggest challenge for monetary policy in our times. And this will continue even after the crisis is hopefully solved. Thank Thanks you. very much. Ari, can I ask you to go next? Okay. Our uh, current financial turmoil began with unusual policy moves by the Federal Reserve System um, and novel federal regulatory interventions into financial markets. Uh, poorly chosen public policies distorted interest rates and asset prices, diverted loanable funds into the wrong investments, and twisted normally robust financial institutions into unsustainable positions. Uh, now, there's no doubt that private miscalculation and imprudence have made matters worse for more than a few institutions. Uh, those kinds of mistakes help to explain which particular firms have run into the most trouble. 
But to explain system-wide errors, uh, we need to identify price and incentive distortions that are capable of having systemic effects. Uh, that's my preamble. Uh, in my limited time, I want to focus on two main points. Um, first, making the case that the Federal Reserve uh, unfortunately provided the means for unsustainable housing prices and unsustainable mortgage financing. I've written elsewhere about uh, regulatory missteps, in fact, in a Cato briefing paper which was released yesterday. Um, so I'll just focus on monetary policy uh, in this part of my talk. And then in the second part, I want to talk about the Federal Reserve's new roles, uh, self-initiated new roles, as what you might call a bailout lender of first resort. Uh, unfortunately, I see little evidence that the Fed's new lending programs have helped to resolve our problems rather than uh, delaying their resolution. Uh, when we talk about credit supply bubbles, uh, many commentators ask only, uh, should the Fed actively burst a growing bubble? And if so, how? Uh, but those questions suggest that the asset bubbles have arisen independently of monetary policy, uh, driven only by some uncaused irrational exuberance, and that the only Fed role we can discuss is uh, that of bubble burster. But I think there's a more important pair of questions, which is, does Fed policy, as currently conducted, tend to inflate asset bubbles to initiate them? And if so, how can we reformulate policy to avoid that tendency? Uh, we might call our objective a non-effervescent or a flat monetary policy. And I don't think the economics profession has reached any consensus on what the optimally flat uh, or non-bubble-prone monetary policy is. But I think it's pretty widely agreed now that uh, it isn't holding interest rates too low for too long. And I think it should also be clear, as it was clear to some observers even in the 1920s, uh, and as some of us suggested from this stage two years ago when the topic was inflation targeting, uh, that a policy that deliberately ignores asset prices, as though consumer prices are the only and sufficient indicator of excessive uh, monetary policy expansion, uh, is also not the way to avoid inflating asset bubbles. Uh, so what's the uh, bill of particulars in this case? Well, in the recession of 2001, uh, the FOMC began aggressively expanding the U.S. money supply. Year-over-year uh, -year growth in M2 rose briefly above 10 percent, remained above 8 percent entering the second half of 2003. Uh, and this expansion was accompanied by the Fed's repeatedly lowering its uh, target for the Fed funds rate, as we've already heard this morning, uh, pushing the Fed funds rate to a record low of 1 percent, where it stayed for a year, the real Fed funds rate was negative, right? Nominal rates were lower than the contemporary rate of inflation for two and a half years. Um, a borrower during that period who simply purchased and held vacant land, the price of which merely rose at the rate of inflation, uh, net of taxes, was profiting in proportion to what uh, he borrowed. Now, is there a more systematic way to judge whether the Fed expanded more than it should have? Um, a widely used norm is the Taylor Rule, uh, a formula that offers a, a method of estimating the level of the Fed funds rate that would be consistent, concurrent, uh, sorry, conditional on current inflation and real income, with keeping uh, the economy's price inflation to a chosen target rate. Um, I don't know if you got the handout uh, I prepared or if you have a, a copy of my paper in front of you, but it's a picture of... Uh, the Fed funds rate relative to the Taylor rule 
uh, guidelines uh, showing that the Fed kept the Fed funds rate on a path well below the estimated rate that would have been consistent with targeting 2 percent inflation, 2 percent being the highest rate within the declared comfort zone. Uh, this Taylor rule gap was especially large, more than 200 basis points uh, from mid-2003 to mid-2005. Now, um, Alan Greenspan has been on many uh, shows uh, plugging his book and pleading not guilty to the charge of having overexpanded and created a credit bubble on the grounds that the housing bubble was worldwide, so it must have reflected a global savings glut, not anything particular to the U.S., um, and with the claim that uh, the monetary base and M2 weren't growing rapidly. There's some truth to there being a, a large supply of global savings. We did see real 30-year mortgage rates in the U.S. decline. Uh, they fell by 113 basis points, uh, while inflation was falling only 15 basis points. But the Fed lowered the Fed funds rate much more than that, by 525 basis points. So I think Fed policy amplified the cheapening of credit in a major way. The claim about money growth uh, is falsified by the fact that M2 growth remained unusually high for at least two years. Uh, it's not been widely noted that the Fed's policy of lowering short-term rates not only fueled growth in the volume of uh, lending, but had unintended consequences for the kind of mortgages being written. By pushing the low end of the yield curve down so dramatically, uh, the Fed lowered short-term rates relative to 30-year mortgage rates and thereby made adjustable rate mortgages, uh, which are based on a one-year interest rate, increasingly cheap relative to 30-year fixed-rate mortgages. So back in 2001, ARM rates were 113 basis points cheaper than 30-year mortgage rates. By 2004, they were 194 basis points cheaper. So it's not surprising that uh, an increasing number of new mortgages were written as ARMs rather than as 30-year fixed rates. The share of new mortgages with adjustable rates doubled from one-fifth to two-fifths. And as we've learned, uh, I guess as we already should have known, Adjustable rates shift the risk of an increase in interest rates to the borrower and borrowers who took out arms, counting on the Fed to keep short-term rates for as long low for as long as they kept the mortgage, acted imprudently, um, and they've had problems making their monthly uh, payments. Um, the credit bubble created went especially into real estate. Um, because real estate is a very interest-sensitive asset, its relative price rises with a lowering of interest rates by a simple application of the present value formula. Uh, it's a long-lived asset. So the low interest rates went especially into the housing market, and the housing sector exhibited a disproportionate share of the inflation predicted by the Taylor Gap. Um, today we have an overbuilt housing stock, and assuming that the federal government doesn't listen to Jim Cramer, and buy up houses in order to torch them. Um, we're going to have excess housing for a while. There's another alternative, which is to relax our immigration controls. Uh, that probably also won't happen. Um, but the process of adjustment is requiring housing prices to fall. They are falling. Uh, the adjustment's probably not complete yet. It also requires housing-related financial assets to be written down. Um, and that adjustment is being delayed. Uh, no matter how painful the adjustment, uh, delaying it only delays the economy's recovery. Uh, 
So going forward, um, what I think is the best prospects for reduced asset froth in the economy lies uh, with a monetary policy regime that incorporates asset prices not into the discretion of the central bank, but into an automatic feedback mechanism. Um, the most fundamental such reform would be the replacement of the FOMC and its managed fiat money standard by a market-managed commodity standard. And I'm, I was heartened to see uh, op-ed pieces to that effect by Jerry O'Driscoll in the Wall Street Journal uh, earlier this week and uh, by Walker Todd in the Christian Science Monitor. So I commend those to your attention. Uh, Secondly, I want to say a little about the Fed's new post-bubble roles. Uh, in my role as an economic historian of uh, antiquarian monetary institutions, let me take you back to the distant past uh, one year ago. Before 2008, the Fed played the traditional central banking role of conducting monetary policy, and on very rare occasions, like 912, uh, acting as a lender of last resort, which simply means preventing the money supply from collapsing. It did that by purchasing treasury bills. So changes in the monetary base were almost exactly matched by changes in the Fed's holding of treasury bills. Uh, there were a few loans to banks, but they were trivial on the overall balance sheet. Today, things have changed dramatically. I refer you to the uh, Fed balance sheet that uh, is in my handout. Uh, in addition to conducting monetary policy, the Fed is now taking on a new role of selectively channeling credit in favored directions. Uh, it makes loans to a, an array of financial institutions that are not commercial banks that do not issue money, that are not intimately involved in the payment system. The total of new Fred credits over the past year, which you might call the Federal Reserve's self-financed bailout program, uh, currently stands at $1.7 trillion, more than double the size of the Treasury's $700 billion, and yet it's gone widely unnoticed in the press. Uh, it's, it's evident on the Fed's balance sheet. Like Donald Cohn, I carry my uh, H-41 with me, uh, and I've had to update my paper each week as the new one has come out. Uh, the list of items now appearing on the balance sheet, but completely absent from it a year ago, begins with term auction credit, uh, currently $415 billion, which represents long-term loans to banks, previously banks that wanted to borrow money on those terms, uh, had to go to the private market or to depositors. Uh, next on the list, within the other loans category on the consolidated balance sheet, but broken out in the uh, sources of reserves item, uh, is primary dealer and other broker-dealer credit, uh, currently $57 billion, which is loans to securities dealers. Previously, the Fed did not lend to securities dealers. Uh, third is the asset-backed commercial paper money market mutual fund liquidity facility. The Fed really needs to hire somebody to come up with better acronyms, uh, which is lending $77 billion to banks or bank holding companies <laughs> for the purpose of purchasing assets from money market mutual funds. <clears throat> Previously, money market funds that needed to sell commercial paper were expected to sell it in the money market. Uh, other credit extensions, which seems to be a catch-all, amount to $84 billion. Uh, fifth, the Commercial Paper Funding Facility, LLC, is a special purpose vehicle uh, for commercial paper, which the Fed has directly purchased from its issuers. So not from banks, but directly from the firms that are borrowing money. It's currently at $243 billion. The Fed used to avoid intervening directly in financial asset markets to support asset prices. 
Uh, sixth comes net portfolio holdings of Maiden Lane I am LLC. I worry about how long this list is going to be. Uh, I'm, I'm nearly at the end. I have to ask you okay. to, to wrap up. Okay, uh, that's the special purpose vehicle for <laughs> investing in Bear Stearns assets. Um, the Fed has very definitely taken on what uh, Don Cohn called uh, fiscal risk. Uh, it lost $2 billion on, uh, so far on the Bear Stearns investments. Um, so skipping to the conclusion, um, the Fed's new activities have amounted to uh, a bailout in the sense that they seem to be protecting, attempting to protect banks and non-banks from the consequences of their portfolio decisions. Um, uh, Attempting that kind of bailout is a worrisome role for the Fed to take on, especially at its own initiative, especially without any public debate or oversight. Uh, the fact that it's self-financed uh, by what you can loosely call printing new money um, doesn't mean that it's a free lunch. It relies on the Fed's power to levy an implicit tax on holders of dollars. It puts us all at risk for depreciation of the dollar. Um, I think it's regrettable that these efforts have not been debated, that they seem to be enjoying the complete freedom from oversight by Congress that Secretary Paulson sought for the Treasury's bailout. Uh, no matter how many times the threat of a financial meltdown is melt, uh, sorry, financial meltdown is repeated, it should not be the excuse for a constitutional meltdown. Uh, it's time for a public debate on the wisdom of the Fed's remarkable departure from its traditional roles. Now, would calling the Fed to account be a violation of the Fed's traditional independence? I'm afraid that Chairman Bernanke forfeited that independence months ago. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm sorry I had to hurry you there. Uh, John, will you go next? I uh, know the topic of the conference is the subprime crisis, uh, uh, which I think is way behind us now. It's the global credit crisis that we're really dealing with, and so I, I wanted to address that. Uh, the paper that was distributed is basically a uh, analysis or some thought that I gave to the issue of systemic risk after the Jackson Hole conference. Uh, that almost seems like a distant memory in view of the pace at which uh, things have un un unfolded uh, since the failure of Bear Stearns. So I think actually I would rather focus on the current situation and look ahead. Uh, and I suppose the new title of my talk would be uh, should we think more about deflation uh, than inflation? Uh, the setting. Uh, since the failure of Lehman Brothers uh, in mid-September, uh, which I don't, you know, that was just a messenger. Uh, somebody was going to fail like that. Uh, the credit markets have frozen up completely, <clears throat> and the uh, final or a late uh, loop or late iteration in the adverse feedback loop has unfolded. That is the credit crisis that was unfolding between August of 2007 and August of 2008, uh, topped off by the second failure of an investment bank and the disappearance of the investment bank industry. 
largely by virtue of the fact that they were using 30 to 1 leverage in a very difficult environment, has moved us really into a situation that uh, suggests uh, and, and, and clearly indicates that a very sharp global slowdown is underway, uh, real time on the ground, uh, virtually everywhere. Uh, the credit crunch has brought real economic activity to a virtual halt. And I would include uh, China in that uh, topic. I would recommend not reading what the Chinese government publishes, but rather go to China and visit a few factories. You'll find them shut down. Uh, so in this environment where the uh, virtual cessation of growth has, has occurred, uh, I found myself actually imagining uh, what Keynes was thinking when he wrote the general theory. And I think some of us, uh, Mickey, I know, was showing me, but was reading what Irving Fisher was writing about the uh, debt deflation, uh, the Keynesian liquidity trap uh, becomes uh, something that's far more real to me than it was in graduate school because we're in one. Uh, the monetary history of Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz. I wish Anna were here today because I found myself reading uh, over the uh, d discussion of the period between 1929 and 1933 and becoming very uncomfortable with the 32-33 episode because, of course, then we had the interregnum between uh, the Hoover administration and the Roosevelt administration, and now we have a similar interregnum between the Bush administration and the Obama administration at a time when uh, perhaps some urgent uh, fiscal measures are required. Uh, so reading these, uh, and then, of course, uh, reviewing the Japanese experience, which, which I followed uh, uh, closely in the 1990s and, and into uh, this uh, century. Uh, the bottom line in Japan, uh, which the Bank of Japan would never uh, Acknowledge was that uh, they had reached a point after several years of deflation where the only way out was for the central bank to promise that next year the price level will be higher than it is this year and to say that if they needed to print even more money than they were printing, they would do so and they would make that happen. Uh, central bankers, understandably, uh, given their responsibilities to establish price stability, are very reluctant to do that. Now, why, why, so why am I so afraid of uh, deflation? Uh, I mean, the, the bottom line is this is not a good thing, but uh, it's a really bad thing. And in order to convince myself of that, I, again, I went back to my uh, graduate school notes. Uh, I have to confess two things. I went to the University of Chicago, and I work for a hedge fund, but I hope you'll forgive me. Uh, one of the things that was most interesting, and I remember spending months on the real balance effect, and that is, remember that the classical economists said that there's no need to worry about the price level. Uh, that will be ground out by a big general equilibrium system. The real economy will determine relative prices and monetary policy and or the system will determine the price level. And if there's a collapse in demand or some shock that hits the system, there is a price level that will clear the markets and thereby uh, suggest that Keynes' uh, proposition that you needed to uh, stimulate aggregate demand directly with massive fiscal programs 
would be inappropriate and dangerous because it would entail uh, a larger role for government. And these are all uh, relevant concerns. But we've already seen why uh, inflation rates that are lower than expected are a serious problem. And why it is, there also seems to be when we're planning ahead and writing contracts, and contracts is the key word, when we're planning ahead and writing contracts, the contingency we think about is inflation. Uh, The examples, the government issues bonds called uh, tips that are guaranteed against inflation. So if the inflation rate uh, uh, rises, you get a check to compensate you for uh, the loss and the real value of the security. Interestingly enough, TIPS also guarantee against deflation. Uh, there may be uh, an oversight in their demand, but if, if, if prices go down, you don't have to pay the government. You redeem them at par. So TIPS become a remarkably attractive instrument right now. If you're worried about inflation, TIPS are good. If you're worried about deflation, Tips are good, too, because you'll always get par back. And, of course, the government then becomes a debtor who is exposed to massive deflation risk. Well, what's happening in markets today? We have mortgage contracts. Mortgage contracts, of course, are written uh, in nominal terms. And so when the price level uh, behaves as about it's anticipated to behave, let's say it's a 6% nominal contract, uh, inflation is 2 or 3%. The real cost of the contract is uh, 3 or 4%, depending on which inflation rate you look at. If you are a home buyer, remember the good old days in 2004, 2005, when the, the real estate people would say, you know, you're, you're getting a mortgage for 6%. The house is going up at 10%. I mean, the real cost of money is a minus 4%. Uh, because the asset is appreciating uh, far more rapidly than the nominal cost of the mortgage. Unfortunately, again, the contracts weren't written that way, but if it flips over and you're paying 6%, as many are, and the price of the house is going down at 10% a year, uh, then the real cost of the mortgage is rising rapidly. And as everyone knows, the real burden of debt rises rapidly and non-linearly, actually, as the deflation rate accelerates. Same is true with labor contracts. That, of course, we all spent a lot of time on that in, in graduate school. Money wages are sticky downward. Most labor contracts envision higher inflation. They don't envision lower inflation. If, if prices start to fall, the real cost of labor goes up. Firms substitute against labor, lay people off, and guess what happens? The unemployment rate goes up. So the the kind of asymmetry in our, in our set of contracts that is much more uh, targeted toward dealing with uh, inflation than deflation becomes a serious problem when the threat of deflation and or if prices rise more slowly than anticipated in most contracts when that problem arises. And I, my own view is that based on the... Uh, freezing up of credit markets, another loop in the adverse feedback loop and the very rapid slowdown in real economic activity, we are probably on the cusp of a move into a deflationary period, uh, which will uh, continue to add to the real burden of debt. One way to break the cycle, of course, is to uh, allow recontracting of mortgages. Interestingly enough, we have programs to do that. Uh, They're so far very cumbersome 
and difficult to arrange. And I guess out of unexpected 400,000 homeowners who'd be helped by the Treasury's program, we've had uh, 46 uh, successful outcomes. Things are moving a little slowly there. Uh, it's not surprising. These contracts are difficult. Many of them are embedded, embedded in derivative securities. They involve difficult negotiations and so on. And, and I think the point is that what we're discovering is that nominal contracts just can't be uh, renegotiated rapidly enough in a period of incipient deflation. And so we have to think of what else we could do. And here again, uh, you know, one thing, just let the price level go down. Uh, that just doesn't work with all the contracts we have. The other danger with a falling price level, of course, and the Japanese discovered this, is that the real, bur the real return on cash is the deflation rate. So cash becomes a riskless asset that earns 3% in a deflationary environment. And that means, of course, that the demand for money can be rising quite rapidly in an environment where deflation is intensifying. And it's dynamically unstable because if people respond to a falling price level by adding to cash balances, uh, that means they spend less and, and uh, uh, the deflation is accelerated. Now, maybe there is a price level that would clear the markets, but my bottom line is uh, I'm not ready to take the Pigovian, uh, Pigovian uh, bungee jump uh, to try to find out what it is, partly because we can't win with nominal contracts uh, that, that don't anticipate a deflationary outcome. So where do we go? Well, as I say, I think it's probably time uh, for central banks to contemplate uh, uh, much more aggressive measures, which would include uh, direct purchases of government securities, which the such as the Bank of Japan undertook, and or possibly uh, direct purchases of mortgage-backed securities, which would lower the interest rates on those uh, securities and enable people to recontract at lower nominal rates. The hard part is, should the central bank ever promise a higher price level, uh, and an acceleration from deflation to inflation. And I find that most central banks uh, feel that one shouldn't. But I think, I think that choice needs to be contemplated and, and thought about in a simple way. Would you rather be fighting an overshoot of inflation, say, to 3 or 4%, which we know we can beat, or would you rather be struggling against a deflation that's accelerating from 3 to 4%, which is dynamically unstable and something, a game I don't think we want to be playing. So to conclude, I think we're getting to a point where uh, incipient deflation becomes real deflation. Central banks will fo face some very difficult choices, uh, just as they did in the, uh, the period uh, in the 90s in Japan and in the United States in the 30s. Uh, and... Uh, I hope that uh, I wish everyone well because uh, I hope we get this one right uh, because the downside is, is pretty substantial here. Uh, let me stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was a little bit Okay. Um, uh, Mickey has got uh, Anna Schwartz's presentation. I, I believe he's going to walk us through it. Thanks. I spoke to Anna yesterday, and um, 
you know, she may be logistically challenged, and it was difficult to come down here, but analytically she's as uh, keen and as assertive as ever. Um, Anna begins her paper, which is entitled uh, Origins of the Financial Market Crisis of 2008, by describing uh, three of the factors that contributed to the financial market crisis of 2008 and then ends with um, proposing policies that would have prevented uh, the baleful of effects that produced the crisis. Factor one, the basic groundwork to the disruption of credit flows can be traced to the asset price bubble of the housing price boom. It has become a cliché to refer to an asset price boom as a mania. However, an asset boom is propagated by an expansive monetary policy that lowers interest rates and induces borrowing beyond prudent bounds to acquire the asset. The Fed was accommodative too long from 2001 on and was slow to tighten monetary policy, delaying tightening until June 2004 and then ending its uh, – and, and then uh, raising rates uh, gradually and sequentially uh, through mid-2006. This was the monetary setting for the, house, for the housing price boom. In the case of the housing price boom, the government played a role of stimulating demand for housing by proselytizing the benefit of home ownership for the well-being of individuals and families. Congress was also more than a bit player in this campaign. Beginning in 1992, Congress pushed Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to increase their purchases of mortgage going to the low- and moderate-income borrowers. In 2006, the Department of Housing and Urban Development gave Fannie and Freddie an explicit target. Forty-two percent of their mortgage financing had to go to borrowers with incomes below the median income in their area. The target increased to 50 percent in 2000 and to 52 percent in 2005. For 1996, HUD required that 12 percent of all mortgages by Fannie and Freddie had to be, quote-unquote, special affordable loans, typically to borrowers with incomes less than 60 percent of the area's median income. That number was increased to 20 percent in 2000 and 22 percent in 2005. The 2008 goal was to be 28 percent. Between 2000 and 2005, Freddie and Fannie met those goals every year, funded hundreds of billions of dollars worth of loans, many of them subprime and adjustable rates, loans to made to borrowers who bought houses with less than 10 percent down. Fannie and Freddie also purchased hundreds of billions of subprime mortgages for their own portfolios to make money and to help satisfy HUD affordable housing. Fannie and Freddie were important contributors to the demand for subprime securities. Congress designed Fannie and Freddie to serve both their investors and the, and the political class. Demanding that Fannie and Freddie do more to increase home ownership among poor people allowed Congress and the White House to subsidize low-income housing outside of the budget, at least in the short run. Unfortunately, that strategy remains at the heart of the political process. The second factor that influenced the emergence of the uh, uh, credit crisis was the adoption of innovations 
in, in investment instruments such as securitization, derivatives, and auction rate securities before the market had become aware of the flaws in design in these instruments. The basic flaw in each of them was the difficulty in determining fair price. Additional bank innovations, notably practices in the derivatives industry, made mortgage lending problems worse, shrinking uh, risk that is basic pro uh, property of derivatives and directions that become so complex, neither the designer nor the buyer of these instruments apparently understood the risks they imposed and, uh, and implicated derivative owners in risky contingencies they did not realize they were assuming. Securitization of mortgage loans spread from the mortgage industry to commercial paper issuance, student loans, credit card receivables, and other loan categories. The designers of the securitizations gave no guidance how to price the pool. They claimed that the rating agencies would determine the price of the security. But the rating agencies had no formula for this task. They designed ratings to complex securities as if they were ordinary corporate bonds and without examining the individual mortgages in the pools. Ratings tended to overstate the value of securities and were fundamentally arbitrary. Absent securitization, all of the various peripheral players in the, mar in the credit market, uh, including the bond insurers who, unwi who unwisely insured securities linked to subprime mortgages, would not have been drawn into the subsidiary roles they, they exploited. Securities and banking supervisors knew that packaging of mortgage loans for resale as securities to investors was a threat to both investors and mortgage borrowers, but remained on the sidelines and made no attempt to halt the processes as they unfolded and transformed the mortgage market. A third factor uh, leading to the emergence of the credit uh, crisis was the collapse of the market for uh, some financial instruments um, one particular was the auction rate securities, a long-term instrument for which uh, in the interest rate is, is reset periodically at auctions. Failed auctions were rare before the uh, credit uh, market cr crisis. Banks that conducted auctions would in inject their own capital to prevent an auction failure. From the fall of 2007 on, these banks experienced credit losses and mortgage write-downs as a result of the subprime mortgage collapse and became less willing to commit their own money to keep auctions from failing. By February 2008, fears of such failures led investors to withdraw funds from the auction rate securities market. The rate on borrowing costs uh, rose sharply after failed auctions. Um, and Anna noted earlier, the main issuers of auction rate securities have been municipalities, hospitals, museums, student loan authorities, and closed-end mutual funds. The flaw in the design of this instrument has been revealed by its market collapse, a funding instrument that appears long-term to the borrower but short-term to the lender is an illusion. Auction rate securities uh, could not survive the inherent falsity of its conception. Both proved disastrous for credit market operations. Final section is how to avoid a replay of the three factors that produce the credit market uh, uh, debacle. Um, with respect to the first factor, Anna mentioned the role of expansive monetary policy in propagating the housing price boom. 
let me first, let Anna first respond to Alan Greenspan's argument that no central bank uh, could have uh, terminated the asset price boom because had it done so, the economy would have been engulfed in a recession that the, um, that the public and a democracy would not stand for. Greenspan does not explain why the Fed, um, and that is a, uh, in, in Greenspan's, uh, the epilogue to Greenspan's memoir. Greenspan does not explain why the Fed could not have conducted less monetary policy, that it did not lower interest rates to levels that made mortgage lending and borrowing appear less riskous and encouraged house increases. The second factor Anna mentioned that led to the credit market uh, problem was the premature adoption of innovations and investment instruments that were flawed, principally because uh, pricing of new instruments was difficult. Credit markets cannot operate normally if an accurate price cannot be assigned to, an, to the assets of a, a would-be borrower includes in his portfolio. The lesson for investors' embrace of mortgage-backed securities and other new types of assets that were profitable to many purveyors of um, services and the distribution of these ingenious ways of making loans is to be very wary of the innovations that have not been thoroughly tested. The final factor that credit markets have contended with is the collapse of the trading and select instruments that revealed their weakness. The losses investors experienced as a result will keep these markets from operating until tranquility returns to the credit market as a whole and weaknesses have been prevented. Concluding, much turmoil may still, be in the, may still batter the credit markets. Capital impairment of banks and other financial firms remain to be dealt with. Insolvent firms must not be recapitalized with taxpayer funds. A systematic procedure for examining portfolios of these institutions need to be followed to identify which are insolvent. Okay. Thank you very much, Mika. Grateful to you for that. Thanks. Well, we've overrun just a little bit, but we have 15 minutes for uh, questions and comments from the audience. See, there's a microphone there. I wonder if I could ask uh, people who want to make a comment to wait for the microphone to arrive and then um, tell, tell the room who they are. Well, you, I just want to see if you're the only, just because you had a chance in the previous session. <coughs> Let me go there first, please. Uh, Brian Bishop from uh, Ocean State Policy. I'm wondering, and, and several of you spoke to the, uh, the preservation of asset prices. Of course, now we're almost speaking about this with regard to hindsight uh, in, in the run-up, and it's almost lessons learned. I'm wondering, uh, but there's a hint that you might be thinking of uh, now. Actually, there's an explicit uh, deliberation to support asset prices now, and I'm wondering – uh, how close that comes to Hoover's attempt to uh, jawbone people into supporting uh, wage rates in the in the uh, early 1930s. Anyone like to respond? Larry, maybe you. Uh, well, I suggested that asset prices need to fall and find the market clearing price. So I haven't heard anybody talk about uh, trying to support current asset prices except uh, – well, in the, yeah, in the sense of uh, slowing down the rate of decline or – I mean, it was supposed to be part of the Troubled Assets Relief Program, that assets were going to be purchased at a price uh, that 
in the future they were expected to fetch. Uh, that plan seems to have been abandoned uh, for the reasons that uh, a way to reach that price was never really arrived at. I mean, no, no clever auction design for actually finding a price that's above the current market clearing price but equals some expected future price, which is higher, uh, was ever discovered. Okay, let, let's move on. Uh, sir. This is a question from Mr. White. Uh, my, my name is John Huckins, and uh, I have a question about uh, the Federal Reserve's possibly intentionally uh, trying to inflate the the housing market. In other words, it, the, their nominal role is control of prices. But I would just wonder if you can comment on, do you think there was an intentional desire uh, by the lowering of interest rates to target that specific asset class? I, I don't see any evidence of that. I don't know any reason to suspect that that was at hand. I think it was an unfortunate, unintended consequence of the Fed's policy. We have another question that, towards the back there. Yeah, hi, my name is George Jeffers. I have a question for Mr. Mackin. Uh, just has to do with, um, with inflation. Um, do you think you're perhaps underestimating, you know, the Fed's ability to, to inflate the economy and for inflation to get out of control? Um, I've never known a government that was unable to, uh, if, it, if it put it mind, its mind to it, you know, to debase currency and to send us um, and, and, and basically to, you know, to send us in, into an uncontrollable inflationary spiral and that I wonder why you feel so comfortable that if we wanted to inflate the economy, we could keep it at a 3 to 4% um, Three to four percent rate, which to many people is quite high. I mean, that's three to four percent was basically what triggered you know the wage price controls of the early seventies. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I I, uh, I hope and pray that uh, we can still engineer uh, an inflation rate of three to four percent. Uh, again, as I emphasize, my concern is is with uh, the onset of deflation. Uh, Certainly, a central bank can debase the currency and has done so. But if we need to offset deflation, I think the Fed has a good bank of credibility with regard to its commitment to long-run price stability. It's just a matter of over what period. I would point out to those who are talking about uh, incipient debasement of the currency that today the world, uh, the dollar is one of the world's strongest currencies. And in my view, that's not a measure of uh, concern about the possible debasement of a currency. Rather, it's a suggestion that there is an emerging excess demand for cash in the United States that parallels the uh, emergence of that event in Japan in 1995, when in the face of a collapsing economy, the yen appreciated to 79 yen per dollar. So what I'm saying is we really need to get by uh, those shop-worn uh, concerns about inflation and move on to deal with what is a very uh, intense problem before us. Okay. Yes. <coughs> Barbara Bowie Whitman, and this is for all takers who would like to respond to the issue. It seems to me that one of the problems is that some unintended consequences of fiscal policy measures on home equity loans, trying to say, okay, you can't deduct the interest on a car or the interest on anything else you purchase, but you can't, anything connected to your home you can, 
And then <coughs> the home became an ATM machine. And, and, and nobody's really addressed that factor in terms of how do you measure it in terms of mon monetary policy when people are refinancing houses to the point that they are now in negative equity. Can you take us? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, just that that's not happening anymore. Uh, of course, of course. Look, uh, in, 19, in 2005, in terms of identifying a bubble, as the Wall Street Journal has reported, there were housekeepers in California with $80,000 incomes taking out $700,000 no-doc, negative amortization mortgages. My, my view at this point is, yeah, it was bad. We had a housing bubble. It's burst. <laughs> uh, it's hard to identify bubbles. Okay, we'll get back to that uh, when we get out of the really desperate situation we're in now as far as the economy goes. So, yes, plenty, plenty of blame to go around, but it's not really the urgent issue right now. This is for anyone. I'm David Beckworth. But what would a monetary policy rule look like that would account for asset prices that were unsustainable, a systematic monetary policy rule that would be preemptive and respond in a timely fashion? It's a good question. Maybe Larry could have a crack at that, and I'd like to hear what Otmar, uh, what Otmar's thinking is on that question. Uh, Charles Goodhart has written about this. Um, there is a, a theoretical case for including asset prices in a price index, exactly how to weight them. I don't know, but um, that's the general idea. Go beyond just the consumer price index. Uh, if we're talking about a monetary policy rule that looks like inflation targeting but adds asset prices, that's, that's the question. Uh, there are other kinds of more strict rule-bound monetary regimes that we could talk about that would tie uh, changes in money supply to asset prices more directly, but that's probably not what you're asking about. <laughs> I, first, I'm not in favor of uh, including asset prices in the index the central bank should take care of. Uh, I think it, this is mis misguiding. Um, one of the, uh, the problems of uh, monetary policy uh, considering uh, asset prices is that it's until today impossible to translate it in a, into a simple rule, a rule which is comparable to Taylor rule, inflation targeting. And this is uh, a critique, but I think uh, if you look uh, to the past, the honeymoon of inflation targeting as a simple rule, uh, taking the forecast, giving you an indications what monetary policy should do, this is over. This is over. Uh, and how to take account of asset prices uh, in the ECB, we have tried to include it in the two-pillar approach, as long as there is uh, not any model which takes proper account of uh, money in, in all forecasts, we know money is just endogenous. This is not what we are talking about. So as long uh, we don't have a model of that, uh, you have to, to have uh, mo money and credit, so to say, as a, an additional argument. And to combine that with uh, inflation forecast and uh, controlling consumer prices in the medium to long term, this is not simple. But uh, that we don't have a perfect answer is no reason to say that we don't try it. Huh? Uh, this, is, this is the point. 
But could I just follow up on that? Why is it? Why? Why do you resist? Uh, you know, a more formal framing of uh, uh, of a target that includes house prices. Just help me to understand what your reservation is on that. Uh, oh, I, I, I thought you would ex uh, ask me why I resist uh, uh, including money into a model. Uh, it's not resistance; it's just uh, asking for delivering such such a model. So uh -huh. In many discussions uh, with with colleagues in, in academia, etc., they say. Uh, I said, provide a model, and then we, we will give up the two-pillar approach. Uh, this is not, for me, the steady-state solution. It's but just uh, reflecting uh, our, the, the lack of uh, a model which encompasses uh, all information. But on uh, including asset prices into a price index, I think then you have, in many respects, double-counting. You have house prices and rents, uh, so at the same time, for me, this does not, uh, it, it's, I'm cautious, not convincing okay. to me. Okay, okay. So I'll take your comment. You've been patient. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, two observations. I'm, I'm, first of all, uh, I would never disagree with Anna. Um, but I think she left something out of her paper. And I think we cannot ignore the agency problem that existed within the mortgage securitization uh, process. I am intimately involved in the cards, credit card securitization. And in credit card securitization, the issuer takes a first loss on his XX spread of anywhere from 600 basis points to 700 basis points. And prime credit card receivables up till now, we don't know what's going to happen in this depression, but up to now have never had the issues that mortgages have. Hmm. But in the mortgage securitization, Nobody left any skin in the game, not the uh, uh, mortgage banker, not the appraiser, and uh, uh, not the uh, uh, mortgage, uh, not the securitization firm. They all were able to pass on the risk till it got evaluated by the rating agencies. And no one could underestimate the importance of the rating agencies in this game. The money funds, the fidelities would never have bought this paper, if it hadn't been if the if the if the top tranche hadn't been written, uh, valued as AAA, and I'm personally having personally known the people who developed these models, and known that they knew at the time that they were developing these models, that they were using the wrong correlations among the pools, and they have said so in public since then. That you can't underestimate the amount of uh, short-term gaming of the system when you talk about mortgage securitization. That's point one. That's just history. Point two, I'd like to refer to Dr. Markin's point, and that is he's worried about deflation. I think he's absolutely right to worry about deflation. And he uses the Japanese episode as his primary um, reference point. I'd like to go back to an earlier one, the 1930s. We had a recovery from 32 to 36. The Fed injected a lot of high-powered, well, we got a lot of high-powered money in the system, a lot of also because of gold inflows. And in 36, the Fed Reserve noticed there was a lot of free reserves hanging around. It was potentially inflationary. So they increased reserve requirements, and we went into a depression of 37, 38. When we come out of this one, we're going to have a lot of excess reserves hanging around in the world system. 
And to think that the central banks of the world can engineer a reduction of those reserves, either without producing an inflation if they if they under respond or a double dip if they over respond, it should be it should start being observed on our radar scope right now. And anybody's any comments on that? Okay, Mickey. On on your first point, I think um, Anna would agree with you, but the color you provided on the agency problem is implicit in her in her statements about securitization, the role of the agencies, and 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 you know all, all the development of of derivatives. Um, let me make a comment on on the second point about deflation, and you know deflation is a symptom of, of insufficient demand relative to productive capacity, and so both in Japan in the in the 1990s and the U.S. in the 1930s, you had declining nominal spending in the economy, and um, you know you could go into any kind of detail you want on that, but. Um, the Federal Reserve, um, particular uh, Chairman Bernanke's, made it absolutely clear that they're very aware of what happened in both of those episodes, and they're they're striving to um, do just the opposite. I think one of the major difficulties now is that while the Fed is um, very stimulative by normal standards, the um, the monetary policy transmission channels uh, are clogged. And, and so the, the major challenge facing um, policymakers um, is how to unclog those channels, which is really a prerequisite to um, uh, stopping the decline in, in credit availability, which could lead to a decline in, not, in aggregate demand. Um, and, and, and unclogging those channels is um, a prerequisite also to any improvement in the economy. So that's, that's the challenge. And I think the Federal Reserve is very, very aware of history, and, and I think um, they're very aware of the challenge. Thanks, Mickey. Um, I think we're out of time, I'm afraid. Um, I think we're going to take a break until 11.30, so um, see you back here then. Thank <laughs> you.